Good morning. It is May the 10th, 2020. Happy Mother's Day. And welcome to Bible class at the Anchorage Church of Christ. My name is Bob Lawrence. I'm one of the Bible class teachers and uh, welcome you to class today. We are in the midst of a pandemic. Experts are telling us that uh, pretty soon many of the restrictions will be lifted and we will be able to worship and study the Bible together. We look forward to that day. Do you have your mask? Have you been practicing wearing it? Uh, when you're in public settings, when we're together again, they tell us that we'll still need to wash our hands, environmentally clean, wear our mask, and stay six feet apart. In fact, look what I got. Look at that. The COVID social distancing tape measure. Exactly six feet. And so you can use that to measure uh, out to six, exactly six feet. And it's a good idea to get an idea. Uh, uh, it's a good idea to figure out. How far is six feet uh, from another person so that we can properly uh, socially distance? Well, today we are obviously in different places, and so I feel comfortable taking off this mask so that you can uh, hear me teach, and we'll go through class <laughs> together today. Today we're going to be in the, in the uh, book of Titus. Now, in the midst of this pandemic, have you wanted to just get out of town? Wouldn't it be great to take a Mediterranean cruise ab about now? Well, that's what we get to do in our study this morning. We're studying the pastoral letters that were written by Paul. First, uh, we read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and today we'll be starting the book of Titus, and then we will get to the book of Philemon. Uh, but the book of Titus is written to a young man who was uh, charged with helping the churches on the island of Crete, the Mediterranean island of Crete, uh, to develop and to know how they were to behave in the culture that had developed on the island of Crete. So I thought, what a great idea in the midst of these pandemic lectures for us together to take a short vacation to the island of Crete and learn about what it meant to be a Christian uh, on that island. Well, the, the island of Crete is a beautiful island. You can still visit it today. It's, it's a long, thin island, about 150 miles long, 35 miles uh, wide at its widest point, has both beaches and mountain. It's a great combination of uh, all the things that are wonderful about that that part of the world. And it has a rich, rich history. And when you visit Crete, you can still go back in time and visit many of the different time periods uh, of civilizations uh, that, that developed there on Crete. In fact, you can go back thousands of years. About the time that Abraham was first being called by God over in Ur, uh, there was a civilization called the Minoan civilization that developed there on Crete. It's considered the first European civilization, and they were well known for their architecture, for uh, their system of roads. And, uh, and they even say that in Europe, that was the first flush toilets were there in Crete. It was an incredible society and civilization, lasted well over a thousand years. Uh, and that Minoan civilization, which ended around 1500 BC, uh, probably about the time of a massive explosion in one of their side islands there on what is modern-day Santorini, uh, that civilization sort of fell out. And the, the civilization of Crete then split up into these city-states. And for the next thousand years, Crete developed a reputation, a quite uh, an amazing reputation, for being a place of piracy and intrigue and treachery. In fact, one of the famous poems of all ancient history was Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and much of those adventures take place in and around Crete. Uh, in fact, Zeus is said to have been born somewhere on 
the island of Crete, and many of the myths come out of that part of the world. Well, Crete developed quite a reputation uh, in that area, and one of their reputations was not a good reputation. They, they developed a reputation for being liars and brutes and being uh, lazy gluttons. In fact, there was another poem uh, about that time from one of their philosophers and poets named Epimenides. And listen to what Epimenides said about the people who lived on Crete in that time. He's writing here uh, from the perspective of Mino, one of the kings, the first kings of the island of Crete. And Mino, talking about Zeus, says, They fashioned a tomb for you, O high and holy one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you, talking about Zeus, are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. Maybe you recognize that quote. It's one that Paul uses in a couple of places in the New Testament. Well, that quote comes from Crete, and it comes from one of their poets who was commenting several hundred years B.C. on the reputation that Crete had developed as being a place of liars and brutes and uh, lazy gluttons. Now, that was, their, that was their motto. Imagine if your city had a motto like that. Do you know what the motto of Anchorage is? From the early 2000s, when Anchorage decided our motto would be Big Wild Life. And if you come to visit Alaska, uh, you get to see that Alaska is big and that it's wild and that uh, people say, here, you really get to live. And so that's our motto. Now, some cities have mottos that are, are, are not of a good reputation. Do you remember the motto of Las Vegas? Uh, about the same time Anchorage had come up with their motto, Las Vegas came up with the original model that said, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, I don't know if that's such a great motto. Uh, what happens in Vegas stays in the, even your money, you know, stays there. Uh, and Las Vegas does not have a great reputation uh, for upstanding moral behavior. And Crete, in a sense, had the same problem, that worldwide they have, had a reputation not for being a wonderful Mediterranean place to visit, but rather a place to visit if you were a liar, if you were a brute, if you were a lazy glutton. Uh, and it was, not, it was not a great reputation. In fact, uh, they actually had their own verb in Crete. In fact, the word uh, the, that, uh, that was used there in Crete is kritizo. Uh, kritizo is the Greek word for I speak Crete or I speak Cretan. Uh, but it came to mean, not that I speak the language of Crete, it came to mean, I lie. And so Epimenides was right. That was a, that was a true statement, that Cretans were known for being liars and brutes and, uh, and lazy gluttons. And it became a, a place of piracy within that hundred years before, uh, before Christ came. So within that, about 63 B.C., Rome took over Crete, and they had to, because Crete had become a place of piracy. In fact, if, if Disney or Pixar films had picked up on what was going on in Crete, there would be a whole new chain of movies called Pirates of the Mediterranean with Orlando Bloom and Johnny Depp, and they would, they would show what it was like to live in one of those harbor towns in Crete. It was a rough place. But the Romans came about 60 B.C., and after 60 B.C., uh, Crete became a relatively peaceful place to live, but they did not lose that reputation. In fact, they took pride in that reputation, that they were liars and beasts and lazy, 
lazy gluttons. And that reputation pervaded not just the culture, not just the harbor cities or the capital cities of Crete. It made its way into the church. And if you understand that, then some of what you read in the book of Titus will start to, to make sense. Well, we're told that Paul, at the end of Acts, was on house arrest somewhere in Rome. Now, this is not the time that he was in Rome that eventually he would be executed. This was a previous arrest, uh, and he leaves Rome. Sometime after the end of the book of Acts, we know that he leaves Rome, and he makes his way around the Mediterranean, likely stopping in Crete. And there in Crete, he leaves a young man named Titus. Now, Paul goes on, and he ends up going to Ephesus, and in Ephesus, he leaves a young man named Timothy. We learned about that a few weeks ago. And then Paul goes from there to a place called Nicopolis, or uh, Nicopolis, and that's on the western side of Greece. And Paul goes there to spend the rest of the winter. But he leaves those two young man, men back in Ephesus and in Crete. And from Nicopolis, Paul takes out his pen and he writes two letters. The first of those would be the letter that we call First Timothy. And so he writes to Timothy. And then he takes up that pen and he writes a letter to Titus down in Crete. And he tells both these men a lot of the same information. He gives much of the same instructions about establishing elders uh, and people who have that reputation within the church to help lead the church. He talks to both men within their respective cities about how to uh, build the church, how to instruct the church, how to grow the church within cultures that were very different than a Christian culture. And so, so First Timothy and Titus share much in common. But when you read through the book of Titus, you're going to notice some things that are a little bit different and are specific to what it's like for the church to grow up in a culture that has a bad reputation. And the book of Titus, the letter of Titus, it's a short letter, but it is meant to explain how is it that Christians are to change their culture when they find themselves living in a place that has such a bad reputation. While Titus, the young man to whom the letter was written, uh, was very helpful to Paul. Titus had followed Paul uh, for m many of those journeys around the Mediterranean. We know that Titus for a time was in Galatia and that he helped Paul with a problem that they were having in the church there among the Galatians. We know that Titus was in Corinth. In fact, he was uh, one of the main people that helped that Corinthian church get things right again. Paul even sent Titus to Corinth to help uh, collect money that, that would be taken as a donation to the Christians throughout the Mediterranean world and specifically over in Jerusalem. And you can read about that in 2 Corinthians. Titus's name comes up many times in that letter uh, that you have in your Bible as 2 Corinthians. Titus was a Greek. He was not a Jewish man, uh, but he traveled along with these Jews. And because he was Greek, he was never circumcised. And, and so uh, that became a point that Paul makes when he takes Titus with him to Jerusalem. Oftentimes Paul would tell people, even Titus, who was a Greek, was not required to be circumcised as a way of saying that to become a Christian means to step into the Jewish story of what God has been doing over the whole world. But it does not mean that a person has to keep all of the laws that you read about in the Old Testament. And so Paul will bring up that point quite a bit. And when he needs to make that point in a, with a living illustration, he points to Titus and says, even Titus, who was Greek, was not required to, to obey all of, these, uh, all of these laws to become Jew in order for him to be a follower, follower of Christ. And so Titus is the one that Paul trusts 
on Crete to go to the different churches and to establish leaders, to in essence point out the people who have been following Christ and whose following of Christ has led to a change in their life. And, and, and because of their good works that come from what Christ is doing in them, uh, Titus is to find those individuals and say, that's what the church is to be like. And he's to establish those people as the leaders, as the, as the elders. Well, that's the introduction to the book of Titus. Let's pause now, and I invite you to read the book of Titus. Now, if we were together, I would just read this to you. We would read it together, but I'm going to pause the video. And if you would, just hit the pause button. This will take you about six minutes, but read this letter the way it was meant to be read from the very first word in the introduction all the way to the greetings at the end of the letter. It will take you about six minutes. And when you're finished, uh, let's come back and talk about some of the common words, phrases, and concepts that we find in Titus. Well, that's the letter that was written to Titus. What did you think? What stood out to you? Did you catch some of the flavor of what it was like to be in a congregation somewhere on the island of Crete? Did you catch that tension between what people said they believed and the way that they behaved? That's really one of the main points of the letter there in, uh, to Titus, is to say that if people say they believe something, but they behave differently, in reality, that is to live a lie. And you see how that fits right into the reputation that Crete had as people who lived lies, not only, not only spoke lies. But Paul says the church has something to do with changing that. In fact, God, working through those people who say that they believe in him, who actually believe in him, God is able to change, not just individuals, not just individuals one person at a time, but he can change entire groups of people, entire churches, and through those churches, he's able to change the entire community and the entire culture. And that's really what this letter of Titus introduces us to. The, the letter is split into two basic sections. The first is an introduction to the problem, and then Paul goes uh, through and gives some specific examples of how to address the problem. We'll talk about most of those next week. Uh, and then he ends, kind of bringing us back to an introduction to the problem and saying the solution to the problem is acting consistent with what we believe. And to act consistent with the way that we believe is to live not a lie, but is to live the truth. And see if you catch that message as you go back and look through this book of Titus. Well, let me point out a few things that might be helpful when you go back and uh, perhaps read the letter again for a second time. The letter begins with Paul's greeting, a standard greeting in which in the ancient world you started a letter, not with dear, the person that you're writing to, but rather you started with your own name. And Paul, in that same fashion, says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now listen to what Paul says next. He says this truth that leads to godliness is a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, on real a hope of real life, which God, who does not lie, 
has promised since the beginning of time. Now, why would Paul feel like, in this, in this way that we don't see really anywhere else, why would Paul feel compelled to say that this promise was made by God, in parentheses, who does not lie? Well, remember in Crete, they were known for being liars, brutes, and lazy gluttons. But also remember that this was the birthplace of Zeus. And though Zeus was uh, the most powerful of all the gods in the ancient Greek myths, uh, he was known as a lying womanizer. And to some extent, Paul knows that. And he is, he is reminding Titus that the promise that we get from God of eternal life comes from a God that is very different than the one described in the myths of ancient Greece. The real, the living God is one who does not lie when he gives us a promise of eternal life. And at his appointed season, God has brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. There's an, a, a beautiful little side note here in which Paul says that God has brought his word to light through this preaching. You remember last week we talked about the Keruks and how uh, God uploads his message to individuals. And then the individuals have this unspeakable privilege of sharing that message the same way a herald uh, rolling out the message would, would give that message to a community. Paul says that that is how God gives his word to the world. But he says something extra special here when he says that God has uh, uploaded this message, this preaching, and he has entrusted it to me by the command of God. That word entrusted is the word believed. What Paul is actually saying here is that God not only gave me a message to pass to others, he says, God, he believed in me. What a beautiful thought that when God uploads his message to you and you become one who bears this message of life, of God changing the world one person at a time uh, by what Christ started before the beginning of time and then completed on the cross and then with his resurrection uh, started the ball rolling on a life for all of us that lasts forever. That work that God is doing in every single one of us to prepare us for eternity is a beautiful message. And Paul says that when God puts that message in a person, God, God is, is believing in him. So it's not just our belief in God. It's the fact that he believes in us. And what a beautiful statement that Paul makes there. And then he gives the title of uh, uh, the, or the addressee of the letter. This is to Titus. My true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now Paul begins to introduce the message and, uh, or the point of the letter. And he says, the reason that I left you, Titus, in Crete, was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, just as I directed you. So Titus's job, much like Timothy's job up in Ephesus, was to go uh, into each of the towns and appoint elders that would be the leaders of those congregations. And then Paul gives a list of these qualities. These are, in many ways, the same qualities that you read about in 1 Timothy, where Paul says an elder must be blameless, husband of one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted, there's the word again, uh, with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So Paul, who loves lists, gives a list of the qualities of the people that Titus is looking for to appoint as elders. Now, why would Paul ask Titus to appoint these people who not only say they believe, but who live in such a way as to show that God has done something in their life? In other words, their life is no longer a lie. Well, the reason for that is that this this reputation for being lying brutes and lazy gluttons had pervaded not just the culture, was not just a part of the community, it had actually made its way into the church. And that's who Paul is addressing here, or what Paul is addressing, when he says in verse 10, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that ought not to be taught, that for the sake, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. In other words, they were teaching what was false, and they were teaching lies in order to make money. Even one of their own poets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Do you remember who the poet was? That was Epimenides, their poet laureate, who many centuries earlier had had named that as the reputation for Crete. And Paul pulls that line out of the palm and says, What else can you expect? That is their reputation. This testimony, Paul says, is true. Now remember that. Paul pointing to what Epimenides said about life in Crete, Paul says this is a trustworthy statement or this testimony is true. The word there is, uh, this is a word of faith. In other words, you can put your faith in that statement that what Epimenides said about Crete was true. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Now listen to what he says about these people in Crete who have Uh, made their way into the culture, if you will, of the church. Paul says of them, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. Do you hear the statement about how they, they claim to know God, they claim to believe in God, but by their actions, they lie. And Paul says of them, they are detestable, disobedient, And then he says they are unfit for doing anything good, or your version might say, and when it comes to everything good, they are are unacceptable. Well, the word there for unacceptable or unfit is the word adokimon. In other words, Paul says that when it comes to doing what is right, when it comes to doing what is good in their community, they are adokimon. You'll remember that the word dokimon was the word that came out of the ancient marketplace where a coin would be tested to see if it was counterfeit or whether or not it was real. And if it were a coin that somebody had shaved a little bit off the edge, if the coin had a cut in it to show that uh, that somebody had stolen some of the precious metal, if, if for whatever reason it appeared counterfeit, then the, uh, the dokimaste or the coin tester would say that is a dokimon. 
Now, if it was tested to be good and, and a trustworthy coin, they would say it was Dokimon. But when you put the little alpha you know, in front of the word, it negates it or says it's the false version of the word. And so to be a Dokimon means to be tested but not approved. And what Paul says of these individuals in Crete, the individuals who were in the church there, is that they, they said they believed in God, but when you looked at their lives, it was clear they did not believe. When you, when you looked at whether or not they did what was good in their community, he says they were like coins in the marketplace that are counterfeit. And, and so did you know that people, just like coins, can be counterfeit? For a person to say that they believe in God, but to act in a way that is not consistent with what it means to believe in God, is to live a lie. It's to be a counterfeit. And Paul says, that's exactly what the, you would expect in Crete. But it doesn't have to be that way. And that's what the rest of the letter of Titus contrasts, is what is life like when a group of God's people living in a culture where, uh, where it is common to live a lie what happens when people living in that culture live out what is true? What happens when people not only say they believe in God, but who actually do what is right, do what is good within the culture, and how does that ripple throughout the culture and in a way make a new reputation for that entire, entire community? Well, that's going to be the rest of Titus. Now, next week we'll go over some of the specifics and some of the specific instructions that Paul gives to Titus in terms of what Titus is supposed to teach. And you read that when you read through the letter, what he teaches older men, what he teaches older women, what's to be taught to the younger men and the younger women, and also what's to be taught to the slaves or what in a modern day sense would be the employees of, of that culture. So we'll go through that in detail next week. But before we close, I wanted you to see the main contrast uh, verse that Paul gives towards the end of the letter. So the letter of Titus is sort of like two bookends where Paul introduces the problem, he gives you detail about how the problem would be solved, and then at the end of the letter he gives you that other bookend that, uh, that shows once the problem is solved, what's the contrast? And you find that in chapter 3. And so remember that Paul said the problem comes from people living a lie. Cretans who are always liars, who are brutes, who are lazy gluttons. Uh, Paul says, when the church becomes that way, they are a dokimon, they are counterfeit. And remember Paul said about Crete, this is a trustworthy saying. They're all liars, but it doesn't have to be that way. And you see him come back to that phrase here at the, at the uh, middle of chapter 3. So let me start in 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Now get this clear. Paul is not saying, you better start doing things right so that you'll be accepted by God. Quite the opposite. He's saying that when a person truly believes in God and truly follows God, there's something that happens with what they do with their life and their time. And so we are saved by God. And that word saved, by the way, is we are, we are made right again. It's sort of the Greek version of the word shalom, where all is made peaceful. All is restored to what it should be. And God saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now you see how he circled right back to the beginning when Paul introduced this letter by saying, God, who does not lie, promised us eternal life. And he circles back to that to say, that's what our hope is in. In a life that does not end the way you think it does on this uh, on this earth, but rather ends with God giving life to human beings so that they can live live forever. So, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having this hope of eternal life. And then he says again, this is a trustworthy saying. Now, notice that contrast. The first time he said this is a trustworthy saying, it was about what Epimenides said about Crete. They're always liars, they're brutes, they're lazy gluttons. But now he gives you another trustworthy saying, a a word of faith. And that trustworthy saying is that we might become heirs, having hope of eternal life. Now that you know all that, Paul says to Titus, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. So Paul brings us back at the end of the letter and says that to say that a person believes in God and to be devoted to doing what is good, not just good works for applause, not good works for money, but doing what is good within a culture is a way of living out what is true. It is to be dokimon. It is to be the, the, the true uh, follower of Christ, but to uh, behave, to act in a way that's different than someone who believes in God is to be counterfeit. And so Paul reminds Titus, and he tells Titus, I want you to stress this to people, that they may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Well, let's, let's end class with a discussion there and just spend a few minutes thinking about our culture and our town. We have a motto in our town, big, wild life. If you were to give our city and our state a reputation, what would you say is that reputation? And more importantly, what does it mean for those of us who follow Christ in this place and in this time to do good works here in our city? In fact, spend a few minutes answering this second question, and that is, if Titus were to come to Anchorage, what good works would Titus point to and say, this is what you, as a follower of Christ, should be doing in Anchorage and in Alaska? Well, the final point there is that whatever it is that we can put our hand to in terms of doing what is good and helpful to our community is an honest statement about what we really believe. I hope that's been helpful as an introduction to the book of Titus. We'll circle back next week and talk more of the specifics of what Paul tells Titus to teach us. Until then, I hope you have a great week. May God bless you. Be well.